get ready, let me uh, run over a few announcements for everybody. Uh, just uh, had a couple of questions earlier, uh, just to go, kind of go over the schedule a little bit. Saturday, we're having our uh, uh, men's prayer breakfast and deacons meeting. Then uh, next Tuesday night, I will be here. That should never make any difference to anybody. Doctrine is doctrine, whether it's coming out of my mouth or somebody else's mouth. That should never be an issue. Um, then on Thursday night, and I really encourage you all to be here, uh, we're going to show the uh, uh, DVD from last, um, last month's pre-trib rapture study group where Michael Rydelnik gave a, an excellent paper on the emphasis on the land promise and the Abrahamic covenant in the New Testament. Uh, what, there, what we had at the, at the conference was a series of uh, papers given on the land covenant as expressed in the Abrahamic covenant, the land promise, rather, as it's emphasized in the Abrahamic covenant, the land promise as it's emphasized in the, um, in, in the land covenant, the land promise as it's emphasized in the new covenant, and the land promise uh, as it was emphasized in the Davidic covenant. See, the emphasis is tracing through all those promises to the land uh, of the land to Israel in each of the covenants. And then um, Michael Rydelnik did a presentation on the emphasis on the promise of the land to Israel in the New Testament, which was really good. But as he was getting, and this was kind, of, this is an interesting little backstory on this, um, seeing the hand of God work. There was a. I'm going to pause the button on the other story. Now we're going to take another rabbit trail. There was a young lady who showed up at the conference, who is uh, Israeli, who had met uh, met uh, Vita, who was here and spoke a couple of uh, months ago, and. Um, uh, Pastor Becky Keenan and myself when we were at the APAC trip to Israel last year, except I didn't meet her because I had to go take in a rent, pick up a rent car, do something to shuttle everybody around. And um, so I didn't meet her, but she did come to Houston during uh, the time that uh, Vita was here, although the, she didn't come over here that Sunday night. But she came to pre-trip, and she sat through. And this this young lady is is Jewish, never really been around Christians very much. She grew up in Arizona, and was exposed to three or four different instances as a as a child and young person of anti-Semitism. She had a very, as a result of which, she had a very negative view of Christians. Then you go through this little episode, uh, meeting with us in Israel last March, and then, I mean, May, and then uh, the event in October, and then she came, and she sat through every single session at pre-trib. In fact, the last night we were there was uh, the last night of Hanukkah, and she and another lady who was a Messianic Jew sang various prayers as they lit a Hanukkah menorah. So that was pretty interesting. Well, that night she was going to go home, and we have two papers the last morning, two presentations, and she was not going to come back. And I said, well, you might want to reconsider that because the speaker in the morning is going to be a very close friend of Vita's, and she had gotten to know Vita fairly well, uh, close friend and family friend, and he's the head of the Jewish Studies Department at Moody Bible Institute, and so you should... You know, if you can get over here, get over here. She said, okay, I'll, I'll make it a point to do that. Well, I didn't think about it the next morning, and I sat, sat on the front row, so I didn't have any idea who was behind me. But I heard from Tommy later that she came in right at the beginning. But Michael, back to Michael's story, Michael talked to Tommy just before he was going to get up, and he said, my paper is only going to be about 35 or 40 minutes long. And... Um, it's not, not that long. Tommy said, well, why don't you tell everybody your testimony? Because he's got a fascinating testimony and fascinating family history. And so Michael said, okay, I'll do that. And so he got up, and I'll just give you a little teaser. Both of his parents were Orthodox Eastern European Jews who were respectively the only survivors of their families from the Holocaust. And it was an arranged marriage. And that's all I'm going to tell you. And Michael and his family were born here. And Michael came to know the Lord later 
later on, and you've got to come Thursday night to hear the rest of the story. But what was fascinating was that this young lady, this young Israeli gal, who's now living in Dallas and working for a Jewish organization as a liaison person with the Christian community, heard Michael give his extended 30 to 40-minute version of his testimony. So, uh, I mean, the results of this are that God is really working in that young woman's life, and she's probably really wrestling with a lot of issues because suddenly she moved to the U.S., and she's just surrounded by evangelical Christians who are not afraid to give her the gospel. So that's a little background, but I think you will really appreciate the... um, uh, th- that video that's on Thursday night. Then Tommy will come in, and he will be here Sunday, Tuesday, and Thursday and Sunday of the next week. And then you'll have me via um, uh, a pre-recorded two s- sessions in First Thessalonians, and then I'll be back. So that's the agenda over the month of January. Okay. Any questions? Everybody squared away on that. Anybody lost? Okay. That should do that. Okay, before we get started, we've taken up enough time with all of those announcements. Let's uh, bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone an opportunity to make sure they're in fellowship, and then uh, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so very grateful that we have this time to come together to study your word, to be refreshed by uh, your revelation to us, that no matter what we study, we know that it's part of, uh, part of the information that you want us to know. It fits in with all of the other information we've learned, and, and it presents a picture for us of what you desire for us and the way we live and how we are to walk with you and how we are to glorify you in our lives. Father, we pray that as we study this evening that you'll help us to understand more about the function of spiritual gifts within the body of Christ and the significance of spiritual gifts so that we may recognize the importance of developing in that area in our own lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One other announcement. You'll be getting the details in in an email shortly, but on February the 16th, that particular that weekend, that fr- Sunday night at 6:30, we're going to have uh, the third in these special events, these ongoing educational type uh, current event seminars, and our speaker is going to be Dr. Susanna Kokanen, who is the director of the Christian Friends of Yad Vashem. Yad Vashem is the uh, Jewish Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. She originally went to went to Jerusalem as part of the embassy from Finland. She's Finnish. I think she speaks five or six languages fluently. And while she was working in the Finnish embassy in Jerusalem, she earned her PhD from the Hebrew University in, uh, uh, in specifically Jewish studies, but specifically in Holocaust studies and anti-Semitism. So she's going to be speaking on anti-Semitism and the road to the Holocaust and it's not just a historical thing. It's, there, she's going to tie it into a lot of things that are going on today uh, in Europe because there is a repetition of many of the patterns that we saw a 100 years ago developing once again throughout Europe. In fact, Sweden made a big deal about a year, year and a half ago that they were now Judenrein. Judenrein is a horrible German to- term meaning Jew-free. So, and also that there, there was like a, a 65% increase in Jewish uh, immigra- uh, immigration with an E from France this last year as they are leaving, many of whom are uh, moving to making Aliyah to Israel because of the increase in anti Semitism in France. So, this is a crucial topic. So she'll be speaking, and then uh, Vita had contacted me. She is bringing an IDF group, group two IDF officers who are going to be uh, speaking about their experiences in the recent, uh, uh, some of the recent uh, military action in Israel, and they'll be here that night as well. So it'll be a fun-packed full night, so that's going to be great. Okay, open your Bibles to Romans 12. 
Romans 12, as I <clears throat> pointed out last time, it develops in verse 3 an emphasis on the fact that God has given to each and every believer a, at the instant of salvation a spiritual gift. Now, spiritual gifts are often misunderstood today, and they're often distorted. And many people sit around, and, and I'm sure this is probably true of some of you, who say, I really don't know what my spiritual gift is. Well, that's not a problem. Some people think that's a problem. Unless you have one of the more overt leadership or teaching gifts, such as evangelism or pastor-teacher or administration, you probably have a service gift that is not specifically related to any individual function, and a lot of people are that way. But even if you don't know what your gift is, that's not important. The important thing is that you are to pursue spiritual maturity, and since we're all required to function in all of the areas of the spiritual gifts, as I pointed out last time, you, you, it doesn't give any of us the right to say, well, I, I don't have the gift of whatever, so I'm not going to do that. We're all required to teach and admonish one another. We're all required to give. We're all required to be witnesses. We're all required to lead in some capacity, even if it's within the home. We're all uh, expected to function in some sort of administrative area, in however small that may be. But there are a, there are spiritual gifts or enhancements in each of these areas. And I believe that as we grow as believers and we pursue our spirit application in every area of, of our spiritual life, that as we mature, we will realize that we are gifted in certain areas and that giftedness will manifest itself. Think about your own background, your own life. As you were growing up, you had certain natural talents, natural abilities, things that you were uh, interested in, things that you excelled in, things you didn't do quite so well in, things you just didn't care about at all. As you grew up, in many cases, your parents tried to expose you to a lot of different things. They exposed you to sports, to piano, to music, to drama, all these these range of activities, not only because they're good to develop you as a, as a person and to educate you, but also as we are exposed to different things, then we find that all of a sudden something we didn't know anything about we like and we begin to gravitate to it. And before long you realize we may have some talent or ability in that area that we really hadn't recognized before. And as many of us went through our adolescent years, and people are asking us that great question, what are you going to be when you grow up? Some of us are still trying to answer that. Uh, we, we were trying to figure out where our strengths lay and what we were going to do with these talents and what talents did we have. And eventually, as we grew up, we gravitated toward certain kinds of things because that's what we were competent in. That's what we could we could do. Those were the talents that God had given us, not in ter terms of spiritual gifts, but in terms of his common grace to all individuals. I think there's an important analogy there that just as you, every individual believer has been given certain spiritual gifts or enhancements, as you grow up and mature as a believer, you will gravitate to certain areas of, the, of spiritual life and service to the body of Christ, and that reveals what your spiritual gift is. But I think that it's just a manifestation of the whole psychological, self-absorbed orientation of our church culture today that people run around navel-gazing, trying to figure out what their spiritual gift is instead of focusing on the real issue, which is individual spiritual growth. And as you pursue spiritual growth, these other things will, will develop and be exposed in your life. So in verse 3, Paul says, A further explanation for, I say, through the grace given to me, and here he's specifically tying that back to the grace that God had given as he's explained it in terms of justification, sanctification in the previous chapters in, in, in Romans. And the foundation is that if we're going to have the kind of renewed mind 
that he talks about in verse 2 that this the foundation for this new mentality is going to be genuine humility, that we're not to think more highly than we ought to think about ourselves, but we are to think soberly. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not under the influence of alcohol. That's a translation of a Greek word that indicates thinking objectively. But all of these terms, as I pointed out last time, are forms of the same Greek root, phreneo, meaning, which is the verb meaning to think and to reflect upon things. And so we have hooperphreneo, meaning to think more highly of yourselves, and phreneo translated to think twice in the chapter, and then um, at the end to think soberly, that is phreneo, to think, uh, modified, or, and then sophreneo here, uh, that's to think soberly. That's to think soberly, and again, it's built off that same word. So using this play on words, the Apostle Paul is emphasizing for us the point of that the spiritual life is a thinking-oriented life. And then we come to this particular uh, statement that's a little uh, difficult for some people to understand because of the way it appears in the English that God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. And as I explained this last time, I saw a few people kind of, you know, they kind of scrunch up their face a little bit trying to figure out what you're saying. And so I wanted to cover this again to uh, point out a couple of things. First of all, we have two options or three options in how we understand the word faith. One is faith in reference to saving faith. It's obviously not talking about the kind of faith that is needed or required to be saved. Second kind of faith is faith in terms of the ongoing faith rest drill as we exercise faith in God's promises, faith in God's word, as we face different circumstances and situations each day. And then a third way in which we use the word faith is is in, in reference to the body of doctrine that we've been taught or the standard by which we've been uh, we've been taught. Now, if you look at verse 6, that, remember, think about verse 3 as sort of a summary introductory statement and followed by an explanation of the different kinds of gifts. And there's vocabulary repetition as we go through verses 4 through 8. Verse 6 states, um, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. What is given to each of us is a measure, as it were, a proportion in relation to a spiritual gift. God does not give everyone who has the gift of evangelism the same degree of giftedness. He doesn't give everyone who has any particular spiritual gift an identical uh, way of expressing that because we're different people, we're different personalities, we have different uh, gifts and talents. So what Paul is simply saying here is that these spiritual gifts derive from God and God apportions them through the Holy Spirit as he sees fit. So these gifts are given, are, are differ according to the grace given to us. And then he starts going through a list of prophecy in proportion to our faith. Now, it would be easy, and I think some people read this, that if you have, if you're less mature, you have less faith. If you're more mature, you have more faith. And that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about, uh, it's not a variation. So that as you grow and mature, the one who has a gift of prophecy, that that gift changes. It has to do with the standard of that, that all gifts uh, have, and that is a standard of doctrine that they are to be given with reference and used with reference to what the Bible teaches about the body of Christ. Now, having seen that in verse 6, it helps, helps us to understand what is being said in verse 3, and that is that God deals with each one of us according to this, this measure of faith that is in terms of the, the faith the doctrine that is given to us as a standard for uh, the spiritual life. So that becomes an objective, an objective standard. 
And then uh, verses 4 and 5 just emphasize three things, that there is are differences in the body of Christ. Everybody's different. There's a unity in the body of Christ. We're members of one another, which is a deep, deep integral um, relationship, deeper than physical siblings and a physical family. We are members of one another, and we're interdependent. And so there's a unity, uh, there's distinction, and then there's this mutual service that comes out here. So I started with the introduction to spiritual gifts last time, uh, defining it as a talent, a spiritual gift as a talent, an ability, or an aptitude that is sovereignly bestowed on every believer in the church age by the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation for performing a particular service in and for the body of Christ. You may have the gift of service. It might manifest itself in ways when you're with your family or you're at work or you're with friends. That's not its purpose. Its purpose is to be utilized within a local congregation. Uh, this is one of the problems that we have when people, and I understand the dynamics today, you all know this, we have people who can no longer, for one reason or another, participate in a local congregation. Some people, because of health reasons, are no longer able to do that. They are, if they're, if they're growing older, then they've grown beyond this and they're in a different stage of life. If they're younger due to health problems, then they're limited in that. And fortunately, due to technology, they can uh, hear the Word of God and they can function as a sort of an associate member of a local congregation in many ways. They can pray, they can give, they can serve in some capacity, but they can find some way in which they can be of service to that local congregation where they are being taught and fed the Word of God. Then we have other people who are just sort of geographically challenged spiritually, you might say. And it, uh, we have a, a problem of living in a, an apostate culture today, and it's getting worse. And it's very hard for many people who are serious about their spiritual life and serious about the Word of God to find a church within their geographical vicinity. One of the reasons I liked and I always thought about this area as a location for a church right on the Beltway is because it allows people from a 30 to 40-minute drive away. That, that takes us all the way down to New, New Territory, off of 59 South, all the way up to uh, the Woodlands and Kingwood, including everything in between from Tomball to Katy, all the way in towards the inner loop, that, that that gives us easy access to this location. And at 7.30 at night and at uh, 10 o'clock on Sunday morning, 9, uh, 10.30 on Sunday morning, there's just not a lot of traffic out there outside of the holidays for people to have to deal with. So it's an easily accessible area. But because of the fact that it may still take some people uh, 40 minutes to get here, because of work obligations, time, things like that, they can't always make it. We have a certain number of people in the congregation who would prefer to be here on Tuesday and Thursday night, but they can't because they are, uh, for whatever reason, they just can't get here. So they are able to live stream. But there are some people who live beyond that, uh, that, that area, beyond that 30-minute diameter, and so they have to rely on some sort of electronic media. I encourage people that if you live in Podunk Junction somewhere, which actually was about five miles north of Preston, Connecticut. <laughs> I remember one time we went over to, you laugh, I'm not making a joke, we went over to Mohegan Sun, which was one of the local, I know it wasn't Mohegan, it was, um, what was the other one? Foxwoods, yeah, over at Foxwoods, went over to the restaurant there, and they had these paper napkins and had a picture of the state of Connecticut, and they had a diagram of what areas in Connecticut went to different Indian tribes. And the area just north of Preston was the area for the Podunk Indians. So Preston was truly at Podunk Junction, USA. But no matter where you are, 
hopefully you can find a local church where you can have some kind of ministry. Now, I've taught this for many years. I am going to give you two examples, a problem, uh, one of, of a negative and one of a positive. The negative was a man sent me an email. I was still up at Preston at the time, and he lived up in, in Vermont. And he said, I've tried for the last six months to attend a congregational church here in my area. I forget the area now. And I wanted to be a good example to teach my children the importance of being involved in a local church. But do I really need to continue? The pastor doesn't believe in anything related to the infallibility of God's word. He doesn't even believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Christ. And I said, no, you don't want to go to an apostate church. There are a lot of people who, because of one reason or another, the pastor may not be as in line with them and their doctrine as they would like. They think that justifies them in not going there. Well, there was another young man who was a major in the army at the time and in the uh, and he was an armored officer and he was outside of Fort Leavenworth and he found a small baptist church the pastor was a little bit lordship he wasn't real sure if he was dispensational but he did try to teach the bible he didn't have a whole lot of training well it wasn't too long before this guy recognized uh, was recognized by the pastor as somebody who knew something about the Bible, and he asked him to teach the adult Sunday school class. And for the next two years, he taught dispensationalism and free grace, and he taught the Bible to that Sunday school class, and he had a tremendous ministry in that little local church. So just because you go someplace and it's not everything you want it to be, it may not be half what you want it to be, but as long as they're not compromising the deity of Christ, compromising on salvation and a few other foundational things such as miracles and the infallibility of Scripture and a few things like that, then try to make a go of it unless, like another individual I know recently who was really working very hard to make a go of it in a local uh, church not too far from where he lived, finally there were just too many little things that were showing up as conflicts because he would just ask the pastor, well, what about this and what about that? And finally the pastor said, you know, you really don't fit in here. You need to probably find someplace else to go. And I don't believe he was being obnoxious in the way he was approaching it, and it was just that that there were just a lot of areas of disagreement. And when the pastor asked him to teach a Sunday school class, and he would teach a Sunday school class and talk about the angelic conflict, then the pastor would call him on Monday and say, where in the world are you getting that out of the Bible? So it's that kind of a thing. So we need to be involved in a local church, though. It is getting harder and harder today, even in some locations where you er, large urban locations in the south where you would think you would find something and you probably could if you had time to go visit 150 or 200 churches but if you pray about it and there's a place open God'll let you know about it but sometimes you just can't find it and thank God we have the internet but still spiritual gifts are not designed for you to function at home with your family that violates the whole principle You need to figure out how to be more involved with a local church, and if that means packing your bags and finding a job and moving halfway across the country so that you can be part of a physical congregation, then that's that's really what you need to do. Now, some people can't do that because of certain restrictions on their job and talent and family and kids and things like that, and I understand that. But the biblical standard... The biblical standard is that people be involved in a local church, serving in that local church, utilizing their spiritual gifts, because that's why God gave every believer a spiritual gift, was to serve in that local congregation, not just let it grow fallow, okay? So this is something that is, is, is very important. And even if you're at a position where you're out in the middle of nowhere, Maybe you can eventually organize your life so that you can get somewhere. It may take you 10 or 15 years, and I can give you any number of stories of people who who did that. But that's important to understand with spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts and utilizing it, uh, utilizing your spiritual gift, is not something that's that's optional. That's part of your spiritual life. So every believer has been given a spiritual gift. They're restricted to the church age. Now, there are gifts of God, such as prophecy, in the Old Testament. But those aren't spiritual gifts by definition, which is a church age 
um, a church age bestowal that that focuses between the the uh, day of Pentecost and the rapture. So that's important. There are some of these some of these revelatory uh, abilities that God gave in the Old Testament and will give again in the tribulation period and in the millennial kingdom, but they're not, by definition, spiritual gifts because they're not related to the body of Christ. Terminology, I talked about these three words. The term pneumaticon, which emphasizes the source and nature of the gifts from the Holy Spirit. Charisma, we're all charismatics biblically. Unfortunately, the charismatics have co-opted and distorted a number of biblical terms, such as charismatic and uh, such as uh, holiness, the holiness Pentecostal. If you're, if you're a church-age believer, you're Pentecostal. If you're a church-age believer, I, I used to love it when I'd get phone calls. I had a church, church phone in my house, and I'd get phone calls, and I'd be asked a question, are you a spirit-filled church? Well, after we confess our sins, yes, we are. Huh? <laughs> what does that mean? I always loved twisting people up like that. We're all, biblically speaking, we're all, all church age believers are charismatic. We're all Pentecostal. But those terms have been distorted by confused, biblically illiterate, theologically impoverished people today. Marismos is a third word that's used indicating a division. I pointed that out in uh, Hebrews 2.4, as it's translated gifts in that passage. That brought us to the third point, spiritual, uh, which is a reiteration of what I was just saying, spiritual gifts are unique to the church age. No gifts, no spiritual gifts were given prior to the day of Pentecost, and no spiritual gifts were given after the rapture of the church. Okay, that brings us to point four. And for point four, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter four is one of the other key passages on spiritual gifts. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. See if you can just remember the word, the number 12. It's not a hard biblical number to remember. How many disciples were there? 12. How many tribes of Israel were there? 13. Some cases 14. No, because you had the tribe of Levi, so they're divided up differently. That's another story. Anyway, 12. And so there are chapter 12, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, define the spiritual gifts. And then we have Ephesians chapter 4. And Ephesians chapter 4 talks about four specific gifts. Now, if you read the literature or you listen to some pastors, they get wrapped around the axle trying to decide whether these four are gifted people or gifts. And I've always asked if they're gifted people, that's because they have a gift. Okay, so let's not get too too caught up in this issue. Are they gifted people or are, are spiritual gifts? In other passages, these are identified as spiritual gifts, and they're manifest through specific individuals, so they become gifted people, but they have a gift. And that comes out of the quote from chapter, I mean, verse 8. So these four are talking about leadership communication gifts, leadership communication gifts that are listed in verse uh, verse 11. But let's look at the start of the passage, verse 7. Paul says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Do you think, just reading the English, does that does that have any familiarity to you at all in light of what we've already seen? uses the same vocabulary that we've seen in, in Romans chapter 12 and same vocabulary we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And it does mention the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, and the he there in verse 8 is God speaking uh, in and through the prophet David in Psalm 68, 18, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, I'm not going to go back and look at Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is what's referred to as an enthronement psalm, and it's a victory psalm where David has conquered Jerusalem, and he is ascending the Temple Mount. 
And so it is. it borrows on the imagery of a conqueror who, after conquering a city or conquering a country, takes of the spoils and distributes those to his army. Some people call that plunder. Uh, but that, that's the imagery here. So the picture here is Christ in his ascension, that after 40 days of teaching and training his disciples in relation to, to the coming kingdom of God, he then ascended to heaven in Acts chapter 1. One minute he's standing there in front of his disciples, and the next second they're all standing there looking up in the sky as he sort of uh, blasted off, and, and the scriptures use a passive verb, so he's basically taken into heaven. You know, it's, it's almost a beam-me-up God kind of thing. God just extracted Jesus from the planet. So he ascends to the high point of the universe, the right hand of God the Father. God the Father is sitting at the command and control center of the universe, and at the right hand of the Father is a human being, a human, human being who has had victory over sin and death at the cross. And so the picture, the imagery that the Scripture uses is this very strong milita- military in- imagery of a conqueror who has now been get, taking a victory lap, we would put it that way in our terminology. It's a victory ascent to heaven where he sits at the right hand of the commander-in-chief of the universe, and he sit, is sitting there until the commander-in-chief is going to give him the controls, and by that I mean he's going to give him the kingdom. But what he does as he ascends is that he distributes gifts. This is analogous to what a human conqueror would do in distributing plunder to his troops. So he leads captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. That's the foundation. I'm not doing an exegesis of all the details in this passage. I just want to emphasize the point uh, that we have here in verse 4, that spiritual gifts in the church age are the direct result of the ascension of Christ. That's why we can make the point we made in verse 3 that spiritual gifts are not distributed in, in the Old Testament period. It's unique to the church age. It's similar to the point that I've made in teaching Romans 6 is that when Paul talks about the baptism by the Holy Spirit in that chapter and our identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection because the baptism of the Holy Spirit is identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. It can't have ever happened to anybody prior to the death of Christ on the cross, prior to the day of Pentecost, or the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33. No Old Testament saint had the baptism by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, no uh, believer in the Old Testament had the power and the tyranny of the sin nature broken because what breaks it is that identification with Christ in his death. That's Romans 6, uh, 1 through 8. And so it's the same thing here. We have a situation, we have spiritual gifts that are given that are the result and only the result of the ascension of Christ. So they never, that never could have happened prior to, uh, prior to the ascension, which was 10 days before the day of Pentecost. So spiritual gifts are the direct result of the ascension of Christ. His current session in heaven and the purposes of God in the present church age in preparing a bride for the Lord Jesus Christ and a people to rule and reign with him in the millennial kingdom. That's a mouthful. The point that I'm making here is that the giving of spiritual gifts are distributed as a result of Christ's victorious ascension to heaven. They are given in relation to his current session, which is to serve as the high priest of the, of the church, and in relation to the purposes of God. Now, which purposes are we talking about? We're talking about God's purpose in preparing a bride for the Lord Jesus Christ. Part of my job as a pastor is to prepare the people who listen to me so that they become mature believers and are ready then for the time when Christ returns for the church, which is his bride. He doesn't want to return for a baby bride. 
He wants to return for a mature bride. But unfortunately, there are too many believers who reject the whole concept of pursuing spiritual maturity. So they're, in a spiritual sense, not going to be really ready for the return of Christ. But the mission of the church in terms of discipleship is to prepare a bride for the Lord Jesus Christ. And those people who comprise the church, the bride of Christ, are going to be the same group that rules and reigns with Christ in the millennial kingdom. So the issue is for each one of us is are we willing to go through the process that God has designed for us to mature us so that we are prepared and ready for the return of Christ as part of the bride of Christ the church and part of the ruling and reigning cadre of the future millennial kingdom. Spiritual gifts fit into that. Now, when we understand this training aspect to the spiritual gifts, it makes sense in terms of what Paul is saying here in Romans, uh, I mean, in Ephesians 4. He quotes from Psalm 68, 18, and he goes on to say, skipping through past verses 9 and 10 because they're parenthetical, explanatory, and we don't need that. Verse 11, and he himself gave... So he himself is a reference to uh, the, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who ascends. So the Lord Jesus Christ, via the Holy Spirit, distributes gifts. Both the Holy Spirit and, and God the Son are involved in that distribution of, of gifts. And he himself gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. So there are four gifts mentioned. These are all uh, communication gifts and, and and teaching gifts because in verse 12 we're told that their purpose is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So the goal of the apostle was to equip or train saints. The purpose of the prophet was to equip or train saints. The work of the evangelist is to witness to people. Wrong. That's not what it says. The purpose of the evangelist is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. We think, oh, the person with the gift of evangelism, his role is to evangelize, not on the basis of this passage. If the purpose for the pastor is to equip the saints, the purpose for all four is to equip the saints. I know that's always a rude awakening for some people. It's really hard when we come face-to-face with the exact verbiage of Scripture. We have to sometimes revise our theology so much. That doesn't mean they are not engaged in personal evangelism, but that's not their primary mission. The primary mission for the evangelist is to train the rest of us who aren't very good at evangelism to be better at evangelism. That's their, that's their function. Same as the role of the pastor-teacher. That doesn't mean the pastor-teacher doesn't function in other areas of service within the local church but it means that his primary purpose is to equip and train others to be able to function in their areas of service within the local church. So the goal of these leadership gifts is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That means that the pastor is the coach, but the team that does all of the work, the team that does all of the operational ministry of a local church are the people in the church, the individual believers in in the church, and they utilize their spiritual gifts in whatever area that that they're, they're gifted in order to carry out that ministry. A pastor cannot do everything. All the pastor can do is to teach and communicate the word. This ministry, both this ministry of West Houston Bible Church and the ministry of Dean Bible Ministries, runs on the backs of a lot of people who give a lot of time to do a range of things, everything from um, everything from running the website, everything from from preparing materials, teaching kids in prep school, taking care of the nursery, uh, various administrative functions. All of these things take a large number of people to make things work. And when you're involved in a smaller church, it means that everybody carries a little bit of a larger load than when you're operating in a larger church. One of the reasons a lot of people like to go to a megachurch is because they can be anonymous and irresponsible. 
They don't have to do anything. They can hide, and nobody knows they're there. Nobody's going to ask them to teach Sunday school. There's not going to be a need for them to do anything. They can just say, somebody else will do it. I don't really need to give so much. Somebody else will do it. I don't need to help with the kids. Somebody else will do it. And it's easy to do that. It's easy to rationalize that way. But when you're in a smaller congregation, then there's more responsibility and fewer people. So everybody needs to get involved so the team functions well. So the pastor equips the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, that is the spiritual maturation of the church. This concept of edification is using a building metaphor in relation to strengthening and constructing within the soul uh, a body of doctrine that becomes the foundation for that individual's life. And then it leads to something. It leads to the unity of doctrine. See, ecumenicalism isn't wrong in its goal, which is unity. It's wrong in how it seeks the unity. It seeks the unity at the expense of doctrinal accuracy. It's the unity of doctrine. It's a unity of what we believe. It's the unity of our understanding of the Scripture. And that comes only as a result of being trained and taught by a pastor teacher. So the goal is till we all achieve the unity of the faith. And as I was teaching just last week in the Bible study methods class on uh, Sunday night, is that one of the characteristics of the scripture is the unity of the scripture. We have 66 books in the Bible, 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books. We have over 40 different authors who wrote throughout a period of a little over 2,000 years. They wrote from many different educational backgrounds, many different vocational backgrounds, many different cultural backgrounds, and yet they spoke with one voice. There is a unity in the Scripture so that there is only one opinion expressed in the Scripture, and that's God's opinion. It's a divine viewpoint. And so only by studying the Scriptures can we all come to a unity of the faith because we're, our, our, our agreement is based on what the Scripture says and what the Scripture teaches. And this leads us to a further knowledge of the Son of God and to maturity, a perfect man. That word perfect almost always refers to completion of something, to maturation, not flawlessness, uh, to, to maturity, to the measure that is the, uh, according to the standard of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children. See, the whole purpose of the local church is to get rid of spiritual children. The sad thing is, and you all have heard me say this many times before, one of my favorite quotes, one of the most insightful things I've heard somebody say uh, was a statement by Dr. Earl Rodmacher, the former uh, president of Western Conservative Baptist Seminary, now chancellor and a strong advocate for free grace. And he was speaking at a one of our pastor's conferences long before Chafer Seminary existed and took them over. It was in Phoenix in 1991 or 92, I believe. And he made the comment that the largest nursery in the world is the evangelical church. And most of the, most of the nursery workers don't know how to get their charges out of diapers. That is a fascinating statement. And what he, for, if you didn't catch it, what he's saying is most pastors don't have a clue how to get the baby believers in their congregation out of their infancy because they don't have a clue. They've never studied the scriptures in any, in any measure of depth to be able to do that. And so when you look at a congregation, it's a lot like a one-room schoolhouse. You have a congregation made up of people who are, who are brand new believers. You have people who've been around a long time and are fairly mature in their understanding of Scripture and their application of the Word, and everybody else is in between. It's like having a one-room schoolhouse with everything from pre-K all the way up through, through uh, high school. And the pastor has to address the congregation in a way so that he presents enough meat and nourishment so that everybody from the high school 
advanced adolescents and mature believers to the infants can find something that they can uh, absorb and assimilate and grow. But what we have in our whole culture is this mentality that babies rule. It's happening in homes where the kids set the agenda in the homes. It happens in the schools where the kids set the agenda in schools. It happens in churches where uh, we, we, we ask the people in the pew what they want. Well, that's like asking a bunch of kindergartners what they really want. Well, they want milk and cookies every day. They don't want to have to work. They're just a bunch of Maynard G. Krebs, you know. They don't want to work. I know that that's an illustration that goes past anybody that's under the age of probably 60. But people who just don't want to work, they don't want to put forth the effort. They want ice cream and cake all the time. And so that's what they get in 99% of the churches is ice cream and cake. They don't get any meat. They don't get their vegetables. They, they're not taught to eat salad. They, they don't have any nourishment. But that's the focus of the, of the church. And what's happening is because if you're a new believer and you want cake and ice cream, you can go get cake and ice cream a, a hundred places in this, in this city. But if you want to have a steady diet of really good spiritual food, you can't find it except in about a half a dozen places. In some places they try, but I know pastors who try, but they'll say, if I do that, everybody will leave. That's a problem. We live in an apostate culture where Christians don't want to grow and they don't want to be fed. But we get another picture of the mission of the local church in Ephesians 4, 7 through 14 here, that the purpose is to build maturity into people. And I made a decision when I went back in the pastorate, went to Preston City Bible Church in 1998, that I was going to uh, teach the Word of God to build maturity into people. And if people who didn't want to be mature came and they didn't like it, then they were welcome to go somewhere else. I would encourage them to stay so they could grow, but I was going to focus my ministry and target my ministry to people who wanted to grow. And if you don't want to grow, there's a thousand other places for you to go but if you want to grow there aren't too many and i'm going to be one of those pastors that focuses on spiritual growth so that's it that's why these leadership gifts are given and they're given by the victorious christ who ascends to heaven and distributes these gifts to the church in view of their future victorious reign upon the earth that sets it in a biblical context now, the fifth point, as with most activities we find in the church, I mean, in, in the scriptures, talking about creation and the work of salvation, all three members of the Godhead are present. It's a Trinitarian function. The Father's involved, the Son's involved, and the Holy Spirit is involved. In 1 Corinthians twelve 11, we're told, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Okay, that he there refers to the Spirit. But what we just read in Ephesians 4 is he himself gave some to be apostles, and that refers to God the Son. And overall, it's all orchestrated by God the Father. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all involved in uh, the, the um, distribution of spiritual gifts. Sixth point about spiritual gifts is that they're not earned or deserved. Spiritual gifts are neither earned nor deserved. They're grace gifts. That's the emphasis in the word uh, charisma. Emphasis in the word charisma is that they are. it's based upon grace. Oh, by the way, uh, a reference on the distribution of spiritual gifts by the Father is Hebrews 12, I mean Hebrews 2.4, Hebrews 2.4. Okay, spiritual, point six, spiritual gifts are neither earned nor discerned. They're grace gifts. God gave you a gift free of charge at the instant of your salvation. Uh, the gift is itself is not developed or learned. You can't do anything to get more of the gift. You've been given X amount of the spiritual gift of service or the spiritual gift of giving. You've been given a certain proportion of that gift, but you can't do anything to increase that proportion or decrease it. But you can do something to develop it. All spiritual gifts, just like any natural gift, has to be 
developed. It's part of our training, part of our focus, and we develop it. Someone who has a gift of pastor teachers, I've heard a lot of mystical garbage about pastor teachers from people who came out of doctrinal churches who ought to know better. The gift of pastor teacher doesn't mean that I can just pick up the Bible and read a passage and I know what that passage means. The gift of pastor teacher isn't a study gift. It's not a knowledge gift. It's not a revelatory gift. It is a communication gift. And the the gift of pastor-teacher is a gift related to leadership. That's the concept of pastor. And he leads through his teaching. But it's it's not a gift that, well, I can just get up and I can just open my Bible and, boom, I'm going to understand what it says. I've heard people say that. But that's not what the gift is about any more than the gift of evangelism is as somebody that five minutes after they're saved with the gift of evangelism can properly give the gospel. They can't. Right, Gene? Just want to see if you're still awake back there. He's got, he's got to be trained. He's got to learn how to give the gospel. He's got to fall on his face 15 or 20,000 times in the process of giving the gospel to people, and that's how you learn, and that's how pastors learn. That's why I think it's so important. We don't have anybody right now, and I pray all the time, and you should too, that we can get some young men, hopefully, uh, who are interested in pursuing uh, seminary education and being involved in a local church to do so, Uh, involved in West Houston Bible Church because we need to train young men. The only place you can learn to ride a bicycle is by sitting in front of your computer and using a bicycle riding app, right? No. The only place you can learn to ride a bicycle is to go out and get on the bicycle and fall down once or twice. That's how you develop that ability. Same thing with a pastor. You get in the pulpit and you teach. It's hard on a congregation, that's a service ministry of the local congregation because <laughs> they have to listen to him or watch him fall off the pulpit, as it were, a few times. But that's what happens. That's how they learn. There's, there's not many other ways in which they can develop that skill of teaching, communicating, and reading an audience so they can understand and you can communicate uh, accurately the Word of God and train people. So spiritual gifts are... Um, uh, the gift itself is not developed or learned, but its use is learned and developed. And that comes with experience, and it comes with utilization, and it comes with time. So that's what's important. A pastor has to go through training. Uh, others have to go through some training in order to learn how to properly utilize their gift. Well, when I get back from Kiev, we'll continue with the seventh point, dealing with the categories of gifts. Gene. That's right. It's because you're dealing outside the church, and it is so difficult to get people to want to go along with you. And uh, the first thing, they're embarrassed because you're talking to some total stranger about his eternal destiny, and you've only met him five minutes ago. That's right. What Gene is saying for the people who are listening, because you can't pick up his, his voice real well with the microphone, is one of the important things is if you know somebody with the gift of evangelism, is to hang with them, to travel with them. And to watch them and observe them. I remember about 10 years or so ago, Gene and I went up to, um, went up to the pre-trib rapture, uh, study group one week, uh, one, and on the way, I borrowed a car from a friend here in Houston, and the wind, and it was rainy nasty in Dallas as it usually is the first of December, and one of the windshield wipers had gone bad, and it, I mean, we just couldn't get, see anything out of the windshield, so we had to pull in and find a, uh, an auto supply place, where we could get a new windshield wiper. So we went and bought the windshield wiper, and one of the one of the guys that worked there said, well, I'll come out and put it on for you. And he came out, and he put it on. And while he was wrapping it up, Gene said, you know, I have this little test I want to give you. And you all know the little track he has with the little test on things. And it was just great watching him. And Gene led that guy to the Lord right there on the curb. And it was just great to see how smoothly and naturally he just used that opportunity to communicate the gospel. I mean, and, and I've been with Gene many, many times and observed this, and I've been with others like that, and it is just so great. And I, stay, I sit there and go, I wish I could do that. 
I just am not gifted in that area of evangelism. But you watch somebody do that, and it encourages you to emulate that and to try to, and, and to, to approach it that way. And so that's that's the, one of the best ways to learn. Thanks for adding that, Gene. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study the Word this evening and to reflect upon uh, these spiritual gifts and re- recognize that each one of us has been saved for a purpose and gifted for a purpose, and that purpose is ultimately to serve in the body of Christ toward the maturation of the body of Christ that we may be all presented uh, before you mature and complete at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us in terms of application in these areas. In Christ's name, amen.